if you love God, you'll give us money. If you love God, you'll keep his 10 commandments and keep the Sabbath especially. They manipulate in all of their effort to get you to fall in line. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we continue our discussion of the 28 fundamental beliefs of Seventh-day Adventism with a look at fundamental belief number 21 on stewardship. Like all the others before, this belief has been strategically placed where it is. It comes only after the reader has been through 20 other unique doctrines, which have shaped a worldview that presents a false god, a low view of scripture, a strictly physical and fictional concept of humans and reality, a false universal conflict, an idolatrous view of prophecy, and a false sense of responsibility in its adherence to bring about the return of Christ, the salvation of souls, and the vindication of God himself, just to name a few. (laughs) Wow. All of these are false narratives, and each of them is rooted in the false prophetic visions of false prophet Ellen G. White and her story of origins. Mm -hmm. So the people who are coming to this chapter now, they've either, well, they've either abandoned the book and they're not going to read it, or they're all in at this point. And they want to get behind the remnant church and the remnant message. And so in today's chapter, we see the writers of the book torture scripture Mm -hmm. to manipulate these Adventists into abundant financial support for the cause of the three angels message and the health message. I think a fair summary of the chapter might be give and prosper or don't and suffer the consequences at God's hands. If this sounds familiar, it might be because we discussed this kind of control in episode two of this podcast entitled Adventism in Mind Control. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go get a pen and paper, walk through the bite model with us and write down your own experiences. So before we get started with this chapter, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view past print magazines, current online blogs, or sign up for our weekly emails, which deliver new material to your inbox every Friday. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So Colleen, here's my question for you. Okay. What did you think about stewardship as a Seventh-day Adventist? What was it? And what were the consequences of either doing it well or doing it poorly? I think my understanding of stewardship morphed as I got older. I grew up being taught to tithe. I was very religious, you might say, about my (laughs) tithing. If I earned money from my parents or earned money picking berries when I was a teenager, I was very careful to take out my tithe and give that. I believed that if we tithed, God would bless us. That was kind of like the package deal that we were told, pay your tithe, God will bless you. I believed that tithe was commanded in scripture. I also understood tithe to be the money that went from the person straight into the conference, not to the local church, because tithe was for paying the salaries of the ministers. I do remember that there were strong emphases on giving offerings in addition to tithes, and church budget was always pushed and stressed because tithe didn't go to the local church. It went to the conference. So if the local church was to have money for any of its projects or upkeep of its building or whatever, that had to come from 
extra offerings. And my parents were always religious about paying both. They did church budget offerings, they did tithe. But as I got older, I began to realize that there were many Adventists who actually believed in paying a double tithe. And after I married Richard, I learned that he had always believed that, and his parents had believed that, and he had gone through the first part of his adult life paying a double tithe, believing that that was the thing he was supposed to do. 10% to tithe, 10% to other offerings, but 20% came right off his check when he would get it. There was always the promise that there would be blessings in response to the tithes, but I don't remember ever really noticing any blessings connected to tithes specifically. I know I struggled a lot financially as a young adult. Stewardship in my mind was primarily about money. It was also perhaps about the way I used my talents. It was basically the idea that anything material that I had was from God, and I had to give him back um, the best part, the best part of it, the, the right off the top, the 10%, right off the top of my talents, whatever I did was for the church. And that was sort of my vague understanding, and it would all result in blessing. What about you? Well, I didn't think a lot about it until I was in my 20s, uh, but I definitely had kind of a prosperity gospel perspective on it. The more you give, the more you're trusting God, and the more He'll give you back. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give, then it's your own fault that you're struggling financially. <laughs> yes. It's just a consequence of being selfish. And that was just kind of how I thought about it. When I thought about myself, I don't remember ever being taught very well about tithe, but I did see the adults around me discuss it. I'd hear oh, them discuss it mm -hmm. at Sabbath dinners or whatever. What was so interesting about that is the way that they would argue about oh, whether tithe comes from taxed money or pre-taxed money. That was definitely something, and that was something my husband struggled with when we first got married. I didn't care. It's like, wherever you feel convicted, that's what we'll do. I remember that as an ongoing discussion as well. Yeah. My parents always said, we don't get to use the taxes, so we don't pay tithe on the taxes. But that was perhaps an, not a universal idea in Adventism. Yeah, people seem to come down in different places on that. There wasn't a lot of direction from right. what I could tell um, coming down from the top, although I'm sure they would have liked you to give 10% of the most possible <laughs> yes. money you could. Of course. Yeah. The other discussion that I would often hear was <laughs> disagreement with how the general conference decided to spend the money. Yes, I heard that too. There was a lot of upset. People would talk about the general system of Seventh-day Adventism being a democracy and that we should have a say. And so those kind of conversations would go on. And I used to wonder, how do other churches do this? Mm -hmm. um, how do they pay their bills and will they get to keep their money? But we had a bigger cause and a bigger right. call and we needed the bigger system. And so that kind yeah. of made sense to me. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the extent of my thinking about it. I mean, after I got married, we were willing to go into debt to make sure that we were giving as much as we could to get help coming out of debt, which yes, is just crazy. Exactly. It's circular thinking. In the second job, after graduating from college, I was teaching at Gem State Academy, and that was where we f first saw the reality that tithes were mandatory in a way that I had never really imagined before. Because at Jump State Academy, 
tithe was taken out of our checks before the checks were given to us. (laughs) So the checks were issued to us from the Idaho Conference, but every teacher on staff had their tithe deducted before the check came to them. Can you opt out of that? No. Wow. We couldn't. It was mandatory. It went to the conference. That was a bit of a surprise. I don't remember being upset about it. I remember thinking it was pretty authoritarian Mm -hmm. and didn't really trust us because I would have paid tithe. What I don't remember is if it came out pre or post taxes. Oh, that's interesting. That would be an interesting thing to go back and know. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that tithe was a deduction on the check and the conference kept that. Wow. Which as I look back on it now... That is really irritating. Mm-hmm. And it really bespeaks to no actual choice or trust of their own employees. I mean, if they, if they thought a person was qualified to teach in their high schools, they should have believed that they were adequately Adventist to pay tithe. But no. I mean, I could see them saying, hey, we'll make this easy for you if you opt in. We'll just pull it out. Mm-hmm. But that you can't even opt no. out of something like no, that? we didn't. Mm-mm. Actually, as I have come out of Adventism and looked back, and beginning to understand how Christian churches who really are committed to Bible teaching, as has been the case, thank the Lord, since we were first in the church where Gary and Rig teaches every Sunday, mm-hmm. I still say, thank the Lord, he placed us with such a careful Bible teacher. But it's been very interesting to me to see that the New Testament model of giving is very different from the Adventist model of tithing. And I know that some Christian churches do teach tithing. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's probably somewhat linked to churches that maybe don't have quite as clear a view of the new covenant and the position of the law. Mm -hmm. But tithing becomes a convenient system, a convenient way of measuring, a kind of like a starting point for giving. Gary Enrig has never taught tithing in the 20-some years we've sat under him. And he teaches the word faithfully, and the people sitting in church are true believers, and they give without being told. Mm -hmm. You know, he teaches the passages when he comes to them that teach New Testament giving. Mm -hmm. There's no problem with getting the money needed. And what I didn't understand until coming out of Adventism is that when a person is born again, there's a whole new set of values and concerns that is not there when people are not born again, but have adopted an ism or a system or a set of theology that's man-made. How are you going to support an organization that's man-made? God supports his church. And that is the dividing line that I see now. And I didn't see that clearly at first. And you know, when I think about the born again, and I think about stewardship, I don't only think about money. I don't either. I I see Ephesians 2, that God gives us works in advance that He prepared for us to walk in and and work in for Him. And I believe that we are stewards over that and responsible to Him for the work He gives us. In this chapter, they try to kind of toss around some other ideas related to stewardship, but the heavy emphasis is tithe, money, it's finances. Nikki, why don't you read this doctrine for us? And I do find it very interesting. It's exactly what you said in your introduction today. This doctrine is pure cultic behavior. This is not one of those doctrines that 
is part of what they try to make it look like Christianity is in the first half of this book. This is one of those doctrines that follows meeting the alligator, yeah, the, the prophet. And this is one of the doctrines that members must do. Yeah, this is behavior control in the bite model. This is not even a doctrine. This is lifestyle teaching. So go ahead and read it. Okay, this is Fundamental Belief 21 on Stewardship. We are God's stewards, entrusted by Him with time and opportunities, abilities and possessions, and the blessings of the earth and its resources. We are responsible to Him for their proper use. We acknowledge God's ownership by faithful service to Him and our fellow human beings and by returning tithe and giving offerings for the proclamation of His gospel and the support and growth of His church. Stewardship is a privilege given to us by God for nurture in love and the victory over selfishness and covetousness. Stewards rejoice in the blessings that come to others as a result of their faithfulness. What jumps out at you in this doctrinal statement, Nikki? It's not a doctrine. (laughs) It's not a doctrine of Christianity. No, no, it isn't. This is a statement of financial obligation to a group member. One of the things I noticed in the very first sentence is that they're encompassing every single part of the member's life. God's stewards, as stewards entrusted by him with time. Well, Nikki, what's the first and primary place time must be stewarded in an Adventist life? Six for you, one for him. Exactly. And opportunities, abilities, and possessions, and the blessings of the earth and its resources. It's fascinating to me, Nikki, as we read this, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but they actually spend specific mention of ecological concerns, Mm -hmm. ecology, caring for the earth. Christians take care of the earth. Christians take care of their animals. Christians take care of their pets. But this is something different. Mm -hmm. So every single aspect of life, they're now trying to stick under this rubric of stewardship, and it is a demand and a source of guilt. So when we look down through this statement, I was also struck by the ending of it. The sentence right before the end, it says, stewardship is a privilege given to us by God for nurture in love and the victory over selfishness and covetousness. So stewardship, according to their definition, is to develop love and unselfishness in us and to stop us from being covetous. Which is interesting because they they also say in the chapter that the more you give, the more you get. So how is that not a covetous kind of framework? It really is doublespeak. As we start looking at the commentary on this doctrine, what jumped out at you? Well, right to begin with, they're comparing our giving, the extent of our giving with the extent of the giving Christ gave when he gave up his life on the cross. And they actually say, acceptance of our responsibility as God's stewards breaks the tendency to live selfish and comfortable lives and makes us aware of the enduring example and stewardship left by Jesus to the extent that he suffered hunger, privation, nakedness, and ultimately the cross in order that we may know the full responsibilities of stewardship. We need to be prepared to suffer in order to be good stewards. Yes. And once again, this is Jesus as example. Mm-hmm. Jesus going to the cross is our example for stewardship. They like to make our stewardship a test of our commitment to God. They say 
earlier, just above that, they say, just when we think we've made a full commitment, a full surrender, something happens that demonstrates how shallow our commitment is. They are guilting their members by comparing Jesus going to the cross and saying, if he was willing to do that for you, then you have to be willing to suffer and give of your time and your goods and your possessions for him. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they conclude that paragraph with, and that stewardship includes his enduring commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations, which makes the church's activities, sharing, teaching, preaching, baptizing, ever more precious to us. So, Nikki, they are saying that spreading Adventism in the world is the goal, purpose, and fulfillment of the idea of stewardship. True stewardship results in and is defined by spreading Adventism. That's really what they're saying here. Yeah, and remember, by the time we get here, we've already gone through baptism, and it's a part of their baptismal vow that they will financially support the organization. Yeah. One of the things that they say in here about acknowledging God's ownership, because that's what stewardship does, Uh it acknowledges God's ownership. They say life can be divided into four basic areas, each a gift from God. He gave us a body, (laughs) abilities, time, and material possessions. With the exception of time, everything there is physical. That's right. There's no spirit. There's no no proper stewardship over your spiritual life. You're abiding with Christ, your time in his word. There's nothing there. No. It's all physical. That's the basis of the Adventist religion, which actually does not deal with the fact that we are born by nature, objects of wrath, dead in sin, and need to be made alive and reconciled to God. There's no new birth in the Adventist paradigm. And this makes it so clear. The bottom line responsibility an Adventist has is to steward their bodies, steward their abilities, steward their possessions, oh yes, and their time. Mm -hmm. And the more committed you are to that, willing to suffer for each of those things, then the more committed you are to Christ and to his gospel. Yes. And the more spiritually you will grow, your character Mm -hmm. will develop. Mm -hmm. This is works religion. Absolutely. It's foundational, it's required, and it's the way the organization survives. The guilt of the people, the sense of responsibility for keeping the Adventist message alive and healthy, and they are responsible for giving their money. And if they do, they will be blessed. It's really a form of prosperity teaching. It is. You know, one of the things that they said under the title of Ways to Acknowledge God's Ownership, where they are talking about stewarding their abilities, Mm -hmm. this reminded me of when I was in school, high school, grade school, and was taking piano and flute lessons. This little paragraph, this kind of idea was always haunting me. Every talent can be used to glorify either the one who possesses it or the original bestower. A person can diligently perfect a talent for God's glory or for personal selfishness. Now, it was always a dichotomy in my head and always a source of internal conflict because truly, I wanted to please God. Whatever that meant, I wanted to please God. I did not want to be selfish. I did not want to be proud. And to be fair, my mother was always reminding me that if I did well, if I performed well, it was not about me. It was about the Lord. It was about Jesus. It was for Him. I was compulsive in trying to perfect myself 
in performance. And I was compulsive to the point that I was so neurotic about it. Sometimes I had trouble playing in public because I was so nervous. Mm. So it was this constant internal push-pull, and it was really, on the bottom line, I really felt the guilt of the stewardship command. These things are for God. These things are for Adventism. These things are to help God look good to people, and these things are so people will think of Him and not you, and yet you better do well or I'll be disappointed in you. These are things to make God look good. Yeah, I definitely had that thought about how we lived, and especially in front of non-Adventists. Yes. You know, we needed to make God look good because Satan was doing everything he could to make him look unfair and unjust and unloving. We had to show them. And there was an underlying thing, too. I think that a lot of Adventists probably felt this as kids. It wasn't only to make God look good, but also in the same package and kind of on that same stream, our parents. We had to make our parents look good because if we did well, it made our parents look like they were doing well, parenting us, giving us opportunities, preparing us to serve the church. And if we were not performing well, well, what were our parents doing wrong? That again, there's the bite model. Exactly. There's the the behavior control because that came straight down from Ellen. Yes, it did. The burden of parents to make their kids savable is huge. Yeah. Well, as she even said, and we've mentioned this before, that when Jesus comes, if your children are not there, and this is all in an Adventist context, he will look sorrowfully at the parents and say, where is thy flock, thy beautiful flock? And I think that's really at the bottom of all of this. Yes. Adventists feel like they have the power and the ability to save souls if they do it right. And so if they do it wrong, how many souls are going to burn in the lake of fire yes. because you were not faithful? And you'll stand before God because you had let, you let people go to hell because you didn't do, well, I guess they don't believe in hell, but you didn't do what you were called to do. Right. And that really underlies this stewardship requirement. And let's call it what it is. It's a requirement. And in a sense, this business of needing to perform, needing to do it right, needing to do it for the right motives and not for people noticing you. All of this underlies this stewardship requirement. And this stewardship requirement really could be called literally a tax. Even though people do not have to normally pay tithe to the church, it is a requirement as we've seen. And if you happen to be working for an Adventist organization. Now, I'm not sure legally this could even happen anymore, but as I did back in the 70s, when it's taken out of your check before you get your check, Mm -hmm. that is a tax. Yeah, it is. That's what I was thinking as you were talking about it. Yeah. And if you look at each of these categories, there's a lot on the line here for the Adventist organization. Stewardship of the body, you got to promote that health message. You got to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Stewardship of abilities, this musical ability is huge in Adventism. It's very big. You got to make our church services look and sound good. (laughs) Stewardship of time, got to keep that Sabbath, got to promote the Sabbath. If you're in a public setting, then it's on you to give up really special things in front of everybody to show that you keep the Sabbath. Give up a chance at the Olympics, give up a scholarship, give up whatever it takes. Oh my goodness. To honor the Sabbath. That's so true. And then stewardship of material possessions. You've got to fund our three angels who are flying (laughs) all over the earth. They need money. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) 
You know, that business of the stewardship of the talents is so interesting because it's huge, as you said, in Adventism. And I remember when I was in academy, I believe it was my senior year, or it might have been the end of my junior year, I was taking flute lessons from a really good teacher, and I really loved playing. And he offered me a chance to play in the Oregon Youth Symphony, something I dearly wanted to do, but it practiced on Friday nights. And I told him I couldn't, and I was devastated. I was devastated. And he said, you know, not understanding, he said, well, couldn't you get special permission? Couldn't you ask your bishop or your pastor if you can get special dispensation to do this? And I said, no, I can't. And, you know, he let it go. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget that. I was so disappointed. I would have loved to do that. But, you know, I couldn't. I had to honor Sabbath. And there was that dichotomy. The stewardship of my time was probably more important at that point than the stewardship of my talent. But really, from my Adventist perspective, I was stewarding my talent. I was keeping it for God. I wasn't defiling it by playing in the Oregon Youth Symphony on Sabbath. A lot of conflicting decisions had to be made. Yeah, and I do think it's a point of pride for a lot of Adventists when they give up these big opportunities for the Sabbath. Because what else do they have? Well, and now they have a testimony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think my testimony is a little the opposite, but you know, (laughs) yes. You know, one of the things that really offended me in this chapter, where they're talking about the stewardship of material possessions, and this was new to me. I had never heard this comparison before. I even read it to Richard, and he was surprised. He hadn't heard it either. And Richard grew up being exposed to almost every conservative cultic Adventist teaching there is. But this is in their book. It says, referring to Adam and Eve, one restriction was placed on them. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree provided a constant reminder that God was the owner and final authority over the earth. Respecting this restriction, the first pair demonstrated their faith in and loyalty to him until they fell prey to Satan. After the fall, God could no longer test through the tree of knowledge. But humanity still needed a constant reminder that God is the source of every good and perfect gift and that it is he who provides us with the power to get wealth. To remind us that he is the source of every blessing, God instituted a system of tithes and offerings. Nikki, tithing, paying offerings to the Adventist organization, they are calling the replacement of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they are calling it God's test of loyalty. That's incredible. I never heard that. I hadn't either. I was shocked when I read that in this book. It's not biblical. No. You pull names out of the Bible, and you throw an address next (laughs) to them, and then you say, oh, this is very biblical. You pretend that you've gotten an idea from the Bible when it's really your own twisted thinking, your own way of manipulating the members. Then you proof text it, and you know, brighter minds than mine have figured it out. Why does this not make sense to me? Well, I guess it's there. You know, something else they say in that section that at first it was just irritating to read, but as I read through the chapter, it just became more and more frustrating. They say Seventh-day Adventists have adopted the Levitical model as a sound biblical method for financing a worldwide outreach of the gospel. Well, of course, they're going to redefine the Levitical model. It's going to not be the Levitical model, but they make it sound as if this was one of many options for how to fund a church or an organization. This is a good option. 
God used it. We'll use it. But then they go and they bind the conscience to this method they chose to adopt. That gives them papal authority. And of course, Ellen White is behind it. These are her ideas, these ideas of stewardship. And just by the way, I I actually looked up the word steward and stewardship in the New Testament. I used an online search engine. I looked it up, and the references to stewards and stewardship in the New Testament, except for the places where Jesus is referring to stories of the steward of so-and-so, or even the mention of one of his disciples who was the steward of Herod, who was actually one of his disciples on earth, the references to stewardship are all in reference to caring for the gospel. Paul called himself a steward of the message and the grace that was given to him by God. Titus said in 1.7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.17, for I do this not of my own will, I have a reward, but if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his stewardship. He stewarded, he took care of the gospel of the Lord Jesus as he presented it to this people group of the Gentiles. Ephesians 3.2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He was given the responsibility of taking care of, of explaining, of passing on God's grace to the people he was teaching. And I could name more. But these are the ways the word stewardship is used in the New Testament. It's never about money. Now, I think that's perhaps a given. It's the idea that when we are the Lord's, everything we have is the Lord's. The idea of stewardship of money as a requirement for funding the church, the way the Adventists teach it, that idea is not in Scripture. And back to that Levitical model, Mm -hmm. the Levitical model of tithing was based on the entire structure of the Mosaic Law. The entire Mosaic Law, Mm -hmm. as we've talked before, not the Ten Commandments separated out and then the Law of Moses. The entire thing, including the Ten Commandments, was the Law of Moses, Mm -hmm. and it was the Mosaic Covenant. And the Levitical idea of tithing was an outgrowth of the system of the Mosaic Law, which was built on the Levitical priesthood. You can't have the Mosaic Law without the Levitical priesthood, according to Hebrews 6 and 7. So, every single part of the law, including tithing, was based on that system of the priesthood, which functioned in the temples and the tabernacles of Israel. Mm -hmm. To say they've adopted the Levitical model is, is not true. It's a misrepresentation. They're basically saying, we've conscripted the idea that the Pastors or the Levites or the priests are supposed to be paid by the tithe. But that's not how the Levitical model of tithing worked. Yes, the Levites were paid from tithe. Leviticus 27 has a lot of passages that tell about how the people of Israel were to tithe. But the tithing was intimately tied up with the idea of the offerings of the first fruits and the firstborn. None of these things could be separated from each other in the Levitical model. And the reason the Levites were supposed to get the tithe was that they, of all the 12 tribes, did not have an inheritance in the land. 
All the other tribes were allotted an inheritance in the land. The Levites were not. They were scattered throughout all the tribes' sections of Israel, and they were given certain cities where they were to live, but they had no inheritance. In fact, Scripture says that the Lord said, I am their inheritance. And the people supported the Levites, who had no inheritance in the land, and they supported them with their ties. But there was more. When Moses gave the covenant in Deuteronomy to the wilderness generation before they entered Canaan, he reiterated the entire law and told them how they were supposed to live according to the law because they hadn't been there when God was at Sinai. And part of what he told them was this, and I don't think most Adventists have ever heard this. This is from Deuteronomy 14, beginning with verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it, meaning the tithe, into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, by the way, strong drink. (laughs) And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So Moses is telling them that God is going to have a place where he sets his name. And we learn as we move through the Old Testament, that's Jerusalem. And that's where the Israelites were to go for their three yearly feasts. But he's saying, if it's too far and you can't get there, you you turn your tithe, and for the Israelites, tithe wasn't money. It was animals and produce. It was flocks and crops. But he says you can turn your tithe into money, and you can buy the food for a celebration. And you honor the Lord where you are with the tithe money, because you can't make it to Jerusalem. Did you ever hear that? No, I never heard that till I left. That's part of the <laughs> Levitical model. And in that same section, it says that tithe was given to orphans and widows and sojourners. It's not just the way Adventists teach it, that using the text Malachi 3.10, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. That's not the proof text for what Adventism is doing. Adventism is requiring a tax of 10% for the upkeep of the Adventist organization. And that is not the Levitical model of tithing. And furthermore, That idea of tithing is not part of the new covenant in the New Testament. So they adopt this business model. I don't know what to call it. It is a business model. That they have altered and adjusted to make fit and work with their use of language. That's right. And then they say that if you don't get on board, you're you're a selfish co-laborer. Yes. And they give Old Testament examples of tithing, and they say that God reaffirmed the law of tithing as a divine institution on which Israel's prosperity depended. So now they're going to move into, you tithe and you'll prosper. Yes. And after they say that they've just adopted this plan, mm-hmm. and then they say that if you do it, though, you're, you're going to be unselfish and you're going to prosper, and they 
they go a step further and they move this now into the new covenant. And they say, while the ceremonial laws regulating the sacrificial offering symbolizing Christ's atoning sacrifice ended at his death, the tithing law did not. Oh, that really upset me when I read that. They also combined that with the idea of Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek and ending with the idea that, you know, now in the new covenant, uh, we, New Testament believers, give tithe to Christ. Well, okay, there are so many layers of wrong to that (laughs) declaration, Nikki. First of all, number one, let me just go back and say, Adventism is not part of the church. Adventism has a false gospel a false Jesus, a false prophet. It's not part of God's church. So to claim that they pay tithe to Christ is a false claim, unless it's giving to their false Jesus. Mm -hmm. But in practice, Adventists give tithe, and tithe goes to the general conference, or to the local conference, or to the union conference, and ultimately up to the general conference. It's not regulated by the local churches. It's regulated by the corporate offices, and it's used for the payment of salaries for ministers. But sometimes that tithe, and Richard had firsthand experience with this at the Pacific Union when he worked there, and he, and he was able to see the, the records of this. Sometimes money for pastors includes things that the pastors use, not just their salaries. So if there is a plethora of tithe money that goes beyond what the conference needs to pay its its pastors, they can actually find ways to justify, for example, building the health club room in the local conference office where the pastors can go and work out because they had the money and that's for the pastors. Or they will do what you might want to call money laundering between conferences, where one conference has an excess of tithe and another conference has an excess of local church budget. So they will send checks to each other, and one conference will send tithe money to the conference that had not enough tithe money, and that conference will send back local church budget money to the conference that didn't have quite enough church budget money, and they'll do a little money exchange that way so they can technically keep their money going into the right channels. And here's where I want to say to those who say, I'm going to stay and change it from the inside. This is what you're paying for. Yes. This is what you're funding. And you need to think about that when you think you're going to stay and change it. By giving your money to the Adventist organization, this is is what you are supporting. And once you understand that this is a false gospel, a false model, not even a biblical concept that you're supporting, there is a huge disjunct. If you've come to understand the true gospel of the Lord Jesus, how can you give your money to an organization that is posing as something it's not? That was one of the bottom lines for us when we decided we had to leave, was I cannot give my money in support to something that is not the gospel, and that's misusing it. Yeah, let's just say your church doesn't teach all the things that Colleen and I talk about. We hear that a lot. My church doesn't teach that. Right. That's just you guys. Yeah. Okay, but your money isn't just going to your church. That's right. Your money is going to the general conference, and they're sending that money to people who teach very horrible things. And by the way, your church doesn't teach the gospel. The other thing that really bothered me about the way this argument was developed was saying Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. 
the priest of the Most High God, so New Testament believers give tithe to Christ? Well, if you look at Hebrews 6 and 7, the author of Hebrews is using the amazing story from Genesis 14 of Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek when he came back from the War of the Kings, giving a tenth to Melchizedek of the spoils of the war. And the author of Hebrews takes that account And he makes the point that the one who pays tithe is less than the one who receives tithe. So even though we don't know exactly who Melchizedek was, except he was a king of Salem and a priest of God, before there was a law, before there were Levitical priests, Melchizedek was a priest of God. So he was of greater stature than Abraham because Abraham paid tithe to him. And then the author of Hebrews goes on and explains that because Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, all of his offspring who were still in the loins of Abraham also paid tithe to Melchizedek. So Isaac and Jacob and Levi, the priests the father of the priesthood in Israel, were all less than Melchizedek because Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews takes that and makes the point that the Lord Jesus has come as a new order of priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is not by law even able to be a priest. And yet, he is the high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice, the perfect blood, and eternally intercedes for us. He is of a different order, of the order of Melchizedek. That means he is greater than all the tribes, greater than all the Levites, greater even than Abraham. This is not an illustration to say, okay, now we pay tithe to Christ. This is an illustration saying Jesus is greater than all and he has filled all of these shadows with meaning. He has completed all the requirements of the law. And now in the new covenant, he gives us new life when we believe him. He gives us new birth. He gives us his own resurrection life. He puts his eternal self in the person of the Holy Spirit in us as a guarantee for eternity. And we now are driven by the spirit and not by the law. We will support the true gospel because the Lord Jesus is in us. It's not about a law and it's not about tithe. No, when we're born again, everything in us knows without being told that all things are God's and everything we have comes from him and he knows our needs and he provides for us and we know what he asks of us and we respond to him. It's not a 10%. No thing that you just, you know, and and you did mention that there are other Christians who will pay tithe. True. That doesn't mean they're not born again. Right. They've just been taught this system differently from how we've come to understand it when we read scripture after climbing out of a group that completely misused the old covenant. Yes. I have heard Christians refer to their offerings as tithe and they don't mean 10%. They just mean what you're giving God. Yeah. So I want to clarify that we know not everybody teaches this, but we're dealing with what the Adventists are doing here. And they start with, oh, we decided to adopt this model. And they're not even a page past that paragraph. And they're saying this law did not change at the cross. That's right. Okay. If it's a law, you didn't adopt it. Right. <laughs> That's a great Which point. Is it? It's all double speak. Yeah. It's all manipulative double speak for the purpose of controlling and keeping members loyal. Keeping them loyal with the fear that if they're not loyal, they will not be saved. Yes, remember this is a test of your loyalty to God, just like the tree was. Yes. 
they use Paul's words from Corinthians, where he says that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. We don't deny that in the body of Christ, we care for those who bring us the gospel. We care for the needs of all the saints. Right. We're not denying that. We're simply saying that the Adventists are torturing scripture. Yes. They're manipulating their members and they're exacting money from them. You know, as an Adventist, I was taught that the way Christians paid for their own pastors at their local level was really an unfair method of paying for a pastor. I mean, once again, Nikki, as you've so often said, this is another area where Adventists told us how Christians think. Yeah. And they're wrong. So I learned as an Adventist that it was really an unfair method, that a pastor of a large church then would get a larger salary. A pastor of a small church would have a smaller salary. But Adventists are so egalitarian, so fair, that all pastors are on the same pay scale, and they all make the same amount of money because people pay tithes to the conference, and the conference pays the pastors by a standard wage scale. How egalitarian of them. Now that I'm in a Christian church, I see how much it means to me to have a pastor who has consistently, for the amount of time I have sat under his teaching, over 20 years now, to consistently open the Word of God and explain to me what it says, how to read it, how to trust it. It has changed my worldview. I want to help support him. Mm -hmm. A true Christian will always do that. They will always want to support the people who are bringing them the word of life because that's what the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts. There's nothing about fair or egalitarian. This is about God providing for the local body. He provides the teacher. He provides the members. He puts the body together and he makes the body generous in a way that keeps the local teachers supported. This is the work of God. This is not the work of a rule of stewardship. We actually have instructive teaching to the church, post-resurrection, instructive teaching to the church on how to give. Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's not a 10% tithe. No. That's as you've decided in your heart. You know, we look at Ananias and Sapphira it's important that we're honest with God mm-hmm. about what we're giving and how we're giving. And we, we don't lie to God about our finances. He cares very much about our heart condition related to money and just truthfulness. Right. But we're not bound to a specific system. God puts it on our heart to know what to do. It's also been very striking to me in Second Corinthians 9, where um, Paul talks about the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is verse 6 in 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, as you just read, Nikki. And then in the next verse, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. <laughs> the promises is in the new covenant 
as believers that God will give us abundantly so we can give abundantly. And as we do that with thankfulness in our hearts, with a desire for people to know the word of God, he gives us more so we can give more. He provides everything we need as he promised, as Jesus himself promised in Matthew 6, that if we seek the kingdom of God first, we aren't even to worry about what we eat, drink, or wear. He will make sure we have what we need. And meanwhile, we give as he impresses us to give. It's not a tithe in the sense of the Adventist teaching. Yeah, the Adventists would say that you fulfill all of these commands by sending it to the general conference. Yeah. It's a storehouse. Mm -hmm. So after they talk about tithes and offerings, they talk about the remaining principle. And they actually say, our use of material goods reveals how much we love God and our neighbors. This is really where they come down all the time. If you love God, you'll do this. Yeah. If you love God, you'll give us money. If you love God, you'll keep his 10 commandments and keep the Sabbath especially. Mm -hmm. They manipulate in all of their effort to get you to fall in line. They also talk about other Christians and say that they're ignorant of these principles of stewardship, (laughs) principles that they adopted as if it was optional, and now all other Christians are ignorant of these laws and principles. It's very inconsistent, very frustrating to read. And there again, they are trying to represent to Adventists the deficiencies of the Christian church. It's actually quite demoralizing when you think about it. And from the inside, as an Adventist, you have no reason to think that what they're telling you about Christians is wrong. And when you actually come to know who Jesus is and move into the world of true Christianity, you realize this was all a shimmer. This was all made up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they tell you that God attributes a lack of prosperity with unfaithfulness. And they say, test God, test him, give him more money than you would plan to and see what he does. And they challenge them to go over and above what they would normally do to test God's faithfulness. Yes. And to give him more money means give Adventism more money. Yes. You know, another thing that they bring up, and it's not a, not dealt with a lot, but they have very carefully chosen their words, and we mentioned this at the beginning, but they also include an ecological focus in terms of stewardship. Mm-hmm. And they actually say in this book, the Industrial Revolution has resulted in air, water, and land pollution. Technology, in some instances, has manipulated nature rather than managing it wisely. We are stewards of this world and should do everything to maintain life on all levels by keeping the ecological balance intact. In his coming, Christ will destroy those who destroy the earth. It's just interesting to me, Nikki, that from teaching the idea of Sabbath, one in seven, to the idea of caring for the earth based on God's command in the very beginning to take care of the earth and subdue it and fill it, they have developed this whole idea that meshes very nicely with political concerns that are active in the world today. Now, I am all for caring for the earth. I am not in favor of being profligate with any of our goods. But that's not the point. Inside of Adventism, 
there's a strong emphasis on humanitarianism. And it's so fascinating to me that kind of jumping off of this ecological focus within Adventism, there is an organization that many Adventists will recognize, ADRA, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency. That is an NGO, a non-governmental organization that is actually part of Adventism, but it markets itself to governments around the world and moves in to countries around the world in times of crisis or flood or famine or whatever, and they will participate in bringing medical relief, digging wells, um, supporting human rights, and they have representatives even that sit on the Humanitarian Council of the United Nations. And it's so ironic to me because when I was growing up, I was taught that Adventists do not participate in these kinds of governmental things. But now it's very much a part of Adventism. And it's using the ideas of ecology and human rights to drive this. And really, under the surface, a lot of this, including maybe perhaps especially their involvement in the humanitarian wing of the United Nations, is really about protecting their own religious rights. They will participate in these organizations, supporting all kinds of ideas of human rights, and which are not necessarily a bad thing, but it's really about protecting their right to keep Sabbath and keep anybody from making a law that would come down against their Sabbath keeping. It's all very deceptive. Well, and to spread their, their unique three angels gospel. Exactly. And get <laughs> more tithe. And get more tithe, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Right after that, they say that Christ was a steward and that, again, he's our example and we are to be stewards like him and that it will bless us and it will help purge sin from our lives, the sin of covetousness and selfishness. And that's, you know, only if our giving is on a regular basis, by the way. And they say that when you give to the church, soul winning becomes a passion. So now you're going to go out and you're going to start winning souls And at the end, they say, the adoption of the biblical plan of stewardship. And again, I want to say, you don't adopt a law. If you believe it's a law, you don't adopt it. Right. The adoption of the biblical plan of stewardship is indispensable for the church, aka Adventism. The continual participation of its members in giving is like exercise to the human body. It results in a strong church body involved in sharing the blessings Christ has bestowed on it and ready to respond to whatever needs there are in God's cause. There's your ADRA. And the gospel here, again, is the three angels message that we learned about in their fundamental belief on the remnant and its mission. That's right. And I want to say, if you are unsure about Adventism, if you are not sure about your own salvation, there is a way to know. Adventism leaves us unsure because it teaches a false gospel and it teaches that we can't know we're saved. And it teaches that our salvation is dependent upon doing the things Adventism tells us to do, keeping the Sabbath, paying your money loyally, observing all of the health message. Salvation is tied up in Adventism with the idea of how well we perfect our characters. But Jesus says something different. He came, he died for our sins. He propitiated for our sins on the cross. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He defeated the curse of death. 
And when we recognize that we are incomplete and we are deeply sinful, unable to rectify our behavior, that no amount of giving, no amount of Sabbath keeping is alleviating our guilt and our certainty that we need something more. That something more is Jesus. That something more is his shed blood. And when you recognize that and admit to him that you need a savior and you thank him for his shed blood, his eternal blood shed on the cross of Calvary that is sufficient for every sin, you and I, and everyone who trusts him will ever commit. When you trust him, you will pass from death to life, and you will know you are saved, and you will know that your money can no longer go to support an organization that does not teach the truth about Jesus. And we just urge you to trust him if you haven't. If you have questions or comments for us, you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view past print magazines, current online blogs, or to sign up for our weekly emails, which deliver new material to your inbox every Friday. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at fundamental belief number 22, Christian behavior. We'll see you then. (laughs) 